0: You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today.
1: The thing that I discovered in the seminar that really resonated with people is one simple word change, which is instead of marketing at people, instead of thinking of people as prospects, what if we call them students? What happens if a student is enrolled in the journey of where you want to go? Because... Everything now becomes about generosity. How do I help that person who's enrolled in this journey get to where they want to go?
0: That was Seth Godin, the author of 18 international bestsellers that have changed the way people think about work. Y'all know how much I love Seth, so it was a treat to have him rejoin us on the podcast to discuss his new book, This Is Marketing, You Can't Be Seen Until You Learn to See. What I most love about Seth's work is how he thinks about marketing, and that it's not merely interrupting people with the stuff they don't want. We go into what he thinks marketing is, how using a word other than prospect changes so many things in your marketing, how to think about measuring what's working in your marketing, and how he felt about getting invited into an organization he got thrown out of a few years earlier. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Seth, thanks so much for joining me again. You were actually, if I remember correctly, you were actually the first person I recorded for the start of my podcast way back when Icarus was coming out.
1: I remember that day, sure.
0: Yeah, um, man, you caught me off guard that day, and I loved it. Um, just um, So thanks for coming back, and I, I love the continuing conversation that we're going to have here.
1: A privilege, sir. It really is.
0: All righty. I'm going to dive right in, um, because, again, I do see this as an extended conversation. And back when we talked in Episode 3, um, Icarus was just coming out. And at that time—so that's the Icarus deception—at um, that time— I think you were still nervi- nervous or apprehensive about Icarus because it was taking you in a new direction that you didn't feel, um, you weren't picked to write about that book in a way, right? Um, but in there, you mentioned that the next logical book would have been a marketing book, like Idea Virus 2.0 or something like that. Um, and I looked over your bibliography, and I noticed that the last book that was full-on marketing published book, that is, was Meatball Sunday back in
1: 2008. Yeah, it's Uh, been 10 years.
0: It's been 10 years. And so I'm going to kind of pull both of those together. Why this book now after 10 years?
1: Well, as you know, I like hanging out with people who are doing interesting stuff. I don't do any consulting, but sometimes I give free advice. And what I found was that a lot of people who were working on good projects had the same issues, the same questions. They were getting stuck in the same places. So I built the marketing seminar, and the idea of the marketing seminar, which we're running again in January, is here's 50 videos from Seth, but don't take it because of, vi- of the videos. Instead, there's a cohort here of more than a 1,000 people who are going to do work around each of these 50 ideas. And in the course of building it, I got to watch 6,000 people engage with these ideas, see where they got stuck, see where they their eyes lit up. And it occurred to me that there's a a lot of people who aren't going to spend four months to do an online seminar, no matter how effective it is. So I should bring that back to the world in book form. So I knew there was utility here, but that doesn't mean it shouldn't just be a blog post. And so the idea of making it a book is we're in this revolutionary moment where everything we know of marketing is completely new. It has changed how elections work, how we go on dates. It has changed uh, the way we buy things, use things, talk about things. But we're still talking about marketing like the old thing. And so what I wanted to do was make an, a totem, an artifact, a, a souvenir, that if it resonated with you, you could give it to five other people. And then you, all of you around the table would be able to talk to each other in ways that you understood. So that's what it is. It's a testament. It's this moment in time, you know, I, they were crazy enough to let me into the Marketing Hall of Fame this year, so I felt like if I'm ever going to do this, this is the moment.
0: And this is after they kicked you out for permission marketing, or is this a different hall that you got kicked uh
1: What happened with the Direct Marketing Association, which is a different group, is uh, they hated permission marketing, and they got very angry at me when I testified in Washington against spam because they thought their members should have the freedom to spam. And they pushed back really hard and they banned me from their events. Uh, Then they realized that spam is a race to the bottom. And while they may have thought their members should have the freedom to do it, it was the non-members who were doing it all the time. Uh, You know, I know a prince who's got $58 million in a briefcase kind of stuff. And they realized it was killing everything. So they came around, which was thrilling. And uh, a few years ago, they called me up and asked me to be in the Hall of Fame. That's what happens when you get old. You have to go into multiple Halls of Fame, apparently.
0: Yeah, well, congrats on both. Um, Thank you, sir. And I'm, I'm just curious from personal, like, did it feel validating that they invited you back, or were you was it pretty much in the rearview mirror, like, that they had bumped you out?
1: You know, I was one of those kids in high school who didn't get invited too much. And Or at least in my head, didn't get invited to much. So part of it is, oh, that's nice. But the other part of it is, that's not why I do my work. And um, I am thrilled when someone takes one of my ideas and doesn't give me credit. I think that's great. My ideas are the work, and if people engage with them, that's fantastic.
0: Well, if that's the case, then you should be thrilled because I've borrowed so much from you (laughs) over the decades. And so um, if we put it in the jar, we'd need about four of them. Um, but I'm going to roll back because you mentioned something really important about books um, that I think is easy to gloss over. And you mentioned that you wanted to be a totem or an artifact that that um, enables or catalyzes conversation. So l- let's talk a little bit more about that particular piece because you know you have tele- you have um, courses like Leap First, which is fantastic. You have the Akimbo podcast. You have alt MBA. You have all of these different ways to do your teaching. Um, And yet there's something about the book. So um, tell us a little bit more about that.
1: Well, uh, our listeners can't see your office, but it's beautifully organized, super neat. The books seem to be uh, organized by height. And uh, you have, I can see, 150 books. But you've read all of them. So why do you need them? I don't see any online courses behind you. I don't see any podcasts behind you. I see books behind you. Because books are the patina of our intellectual life and we want them around so we can hand one to someone, so we can remind ourselves of what was in it just by glancing at the spine. And that took 500 years to pull off, and it's definitely going away. It's going away slower than I expected, which is good. But there's something special about saying, I was willing to devote a year of my life, and I chopped down a tree, and here it is. To, to That's different than saying, here's a blog post. Because even though blog posts are easier to forward to people, books land with more impact.
0: Absolutely, and you mentioned part of why I have the books is an external mind map for me. And when I don't have when I don't have the books, I feel ungrounded. I can't remember stuff. It's weird. Um, and you mentioned um, that it's this artifact. And um, but what I want to say here is I've noticed as I've finished my book, there's also this thing about how people receive a book, like you could spend four years working on a brilliant course and say, hey, I made this for you, right? I made this. And, and while they might be excited, it's a whole different level than if you spend a year writing a book and say, hey, I made this book. And there's just something magic about it in that way. Do you notice that there, as well?
1: There is. I will say, as someone who is devoting most of his working life to making online workshops, which are different than online courses that my online workshops change people more deeply, more profoundly, and more permanently than my books do. The difference is scale, right? So it's you do both. The book can reach 100,000 or a million people. The course can only reach 10,000. But those 10,000 people are way more engaged for a longer period of time than a book could ever deliver. So my expectation is that generations coming forward are more likely to engage with each other and ideas in that format than they are in going to a building filled with books.
0: I think that's true. Now, we've danced around marketing, and I love the way you've either defined or redefined or re what marketing is. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of in the inside joke here, um, and I'm never going to do justice with the way that you'll talk about it. So tell us, what is marketing these days?
1: Marketers make change happen. That's what we do. And so, if you are bringing change to a community of any size, hoping that people will hear your story and change their behavior as a result, you're a marketer. And so, it has nothing to do with advertising, nothing to do with manufacturing, nothing to do with shelf space, and everything to do with your posture in the community of someone who does work that matters for people who care. And if they're not people who care, then you're just yelling. And if it's not work that matters, then you're just being selfish. So those pieces together, when added up, redefine marketing as the work we do to change our culture.
0: That's fascinating because as I was reading the book, I was reminded of Dan Pink's book, uh, "To Sell as Human." Sure. Um, and I, there's a, I think, an underlying, um, fundamental assumption between both is that whether you're, if you're doing work that matters, you both have to market and you have to sell, you have to convince people and change people, and we can't get out of it um, if we really want to do our best work.
1: I think that the uh, the thing that I discovered in the seminar that really resonated with people is one simple word change, which is instead of marketing at people, instead of thinking of people as prospects, what if we call them students? What happens if you're a student is enrolled in the journey of where you want to go. Because everything now becomes about generosity. How do I help that person who's enrolled in this journey get to where they want to go? And we can't lie about it. We can't say, oh, you'll get there by buying these vitamins. Don't buy vitamins from anyone else. Just buy my vitamins. Well, that's selfish. But if you are working with someone and it turns out that your competitor's product will help them get to where they want to go better than yours, And you're marketing with them, you'll point them to that because you're proud enough and confident enough in your product that you know that when it's time for that problem to come around, you can fully enroll, fully engage, and recommend it.
0: So when I came across that part in the book, I legit stopped, stood up. And so sort I of did the fist pump right, when I read that, um, because not only I, I looked at from that perspective, because you know a lot of the work that I do with people, and they're like, well, I want to do the work, but then I got to do the marketing, and then I got to like, there's this necessary evil that they have to go do, and then push it off and push it off and push it off, and so it takes a lot of work to get people to change their mindset about that. But what I particularly loved about that is when you approach the people you're talking to as students. Um, it has this also sneaky way of informing your business model and everything else that you might do because if they're students, you're teaching them something, which means they are somewhere, wanting to go somewhere, and it actually helps scope down what you're doing to go back to what you're saying, making that change happen as opposed when I think you take this sort of prospecting, marketing perspective. It's like I'm just trying to get them to take an action to do the thing that I want them to do, and so it completely reverses it.
1: Right, and if someone says, well, that's fine, but what if uh, – No one wants what I'm offering. What if no one's enrolled in my journey? Then my answer is make something else. That if you as a life insurance salesperson need to stress people out, use family connections and pressure folks to sign on the line that is dotted, well then market something else. Because if you can't view this and be honest about it as something welcome, then we don't need you, and we have enough choices now that we won't listen to you.
0: And let's spin that for marketing art because it's easy when we're creating solutions, sort of in, you can think in the nonfiction space and we made some widget that did something for you. Um, but I know a lot of artists get tripped up thinking about the people they're marketing to as teachers or as students. Right. Um, so rip on that a little bit, if you would.
1: So when you say artists, do you mean people who paint?
0: I mean yes, specific the way we normally use it, not the way that we use it in the broader conversation that, sh- that you use it. Okay. So fine so artists here, I
1: Here's the deal. Most painters would like to make a living painting. But if they were honest, they would not buy their own paintings. Because they are they have something inside of them. It's a wonderful craft. It's an important hobby. But it's not clear. That it's a business. And for it to be a business where we are going to engage with you for cash, we are looking for something more than a pretty picture because pretty pictures are pretty close to free now. You can print them out on your Epson. So what are you selling us if you're not selling us a pretty picture? Well, I know what Shepard Fairey is selling us. I know what Jackson Pollock sold us. I know what Marcel Duchamp sold us. I know what the Baroness sold us when she put that urinal into an art exhibit. These are people who are creating tension. That what they are doing is changing the person that they are serving by saying, "Uh, you were like this, and then my art showed up, and I changed you, or not. But in that moment, you felt discomfort and thrilled at the same time. They're also selling status, that the reason someone pays $100,000 for a painting is not because it's $99,000 better a painting than your painting, it's because they're getting $200,000 worth of status value out of it. They can say, oh, have you seen this thing on my wall? It's a limited edition. I can have one. Most people can't. If you can't sell that and you don't want to make change by creating tension, then yes, you're a painter and I'm sure it's beautiful. But you don't have a business, and that's okay. You're allowed to have a hobby, but there are different things.
0: And you said something similar about nonprofits as well, right? Like people in nonprofits don't want to do the marketing and the selling and things like that. But it's a similar sort of thing: is so if they're buying the status, they're buying the, that they feel better after giving you money, right? Um, exactly. In different ways. And
1: yeah, one of the important ideas in the book for nonprofits is if someone donates fifty thousand dollars to a nonprofit, they're only doing it for one reason it's because they got $75,000 worth of value out of doing so. It's a bargain. Which means if you don't bring it to them, you're stealing. You're stealing because they had a chance to get $75,000 worth of joy for $50,000, but you were afraid to bring it to them. And once you think about it that way and realize that you are a teacher and a guide, not someone who's pushing someone to buy something you would never buy, then your calling can become more clear.
0: That's one of the amazing third lines in the book, the, the bit of the responsibility of us to get our work to the people who need it. And I think it's part of the shift that we're talking about, thinking people as students, they don't know what it is that you're trying to teach. And ostensibly, they're better off after learning that thing, right? Um, but it's your job to find them. It's not your job, their job to find you.
1: And this idea that charging is a bad thing, and I, people will often raise their hand and say, I want to be generous, so I give people a discount. That's not being generous. That is just telling them a story about value. And often, when you give someone a discount, they like it less. Because then they wonder if they could have gotten a bigger discount if they had tried harder. And they think that their status went down. Because they're the kind of person that needed the discount. And on and on and on. That... The generous thing is to apply emotional labor to go out on a limb exposing yourself in the service of the change you seek to make. And then proudly saying, but not everyone can have this. And if you want it, it costs money. And it costs this much money. And if you don't want to pay that much money, that's fine. There's a cheaper, lesser person down the street. Here's their phone number. But to be confident enough in what you make that you will actually and proudly charge for it is difficult. And the fact is, your stuff's probably not that good. So let's go back to the beginning and say, how do you make your stuff better before you start whining about the fact that you have to sell it?
0: You mentioned emotional labor, which was a, I forget where, it was in one of the earlier chapters of the book. And I love the distinction you had um, between the people who do the emotional labor, which isn't always fun which isn't, um, you know, it's the it's Stephen Pressfield, just do the work sort of scenario versus people who think to make the change that you have to have that positive, let's call it passion. Um, I didn't write this question down because we've had a conversation before and I know not to have too many questions. Um,
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: so um, forgive me for not. You counterposed emotional labor, I think, with passion. Right. Uh, and um, how... Um, Artists or people who want to make change happen, which is the broader way in which we talk about artists. Sure. Right. Um, need to embrace applying emotional labor, not applying passion. Did I get that right?
1: Yeah, I mean I was talking about authenticity and vulnerability at the same time. And mm-hmm. and so if you need knee surgery and it's scheduled for Wednesday and you go on Wednesday and the surgeon says, Yeah, I don't really feel like it. I had trouble getting my kid out the door this morning, I'm not really in a good mood. You don't that's not okay. You hired a surgeon to do surgery, and she better do surgery, and she better do it at her best. That's not easy. It's not natural. It's labor. It is not the labor of digging a ditch, but it is labor. Showing up when you don't feel like it. So I have a real problem with this authenticity thing. This authenticity thing is great for your hobby. But if you're a professional, I don't want you to be authentic. I want you to be consistent. I want you to make a promise to me about what you're going to teach me and how you're going to change me, and then I want you to keep the promise. And I don't want you to tell me you needed three drinks to get over your writer's block, and I don't want to hear that you're not in the mood. I want you, to, If you want my money and you want my trust, then I want from you professionalism of bringing emotional labor to the table and keeping your promises.
0: And trust is built by action, not by talking. Um, which later in the later in the um, book you talk about that. And so I think, well, you think, and I think marketers have spoken too much. they talk too much. Um, and they need to do more doing. Um, so tell us a little bit more about what you mean there.
1: Well, if we think about the people in our lives we actually trust, we don't trust them because they talk a good game. We trust them because they used to talk a good game, but then they kept their promises. So we have a challenge if our organization gets to any scale whatsoever. And the problem is the marketers aren't allowed to do, and the doers aren't allowed to market. So I just got a phone with Delta Airlines. I had a miserable 20-hour flight. It took me through three countries and blah, blah, blah. Well, Delta has been telling me for years that they care about me. But that was the marketer. The operations people don't care about me at all. And so the collision that I had today was very painful because I feel stupid because I should have known they don't care about me, but I believe them, right? And so what we need to do when we're a marketer is we need to be in charge of customer service and we need to be in charge of the supply chain and we need to be in charge of product development and we need to be in charge of the finance department because all of those things are marketing. They're just called different things, but they are the way we are engaging with the customer. And if we're not prepared to keep our promise, we shouldn't make it.
0: What I loved here, and I hadn't seen you discuss this before, was um, sharecropping and building an intention asset. Right. Uh, um, because I think that's the point where people, I think, have misunderstood you. Um, because you often and rightly say, like, go make a wreckus, go out. And you got all these platforms, so on and so forth. And if you're not paying attention, you end up digital sharecropping. Um, And so um, explain a little bit more about what you mean there and how to avoid um, the the worst parts of the digital sharecropping um, um, pattern.
1: Well, so here's what's really easy. To post something on Medium, it looks beautiful. To uh, move your blog from wherever it is to LinkedIn because you get some bonus traffic. And most of all, to build a Facebook following. But as soon as you do these three things... You cease to be the customer and now you are the product. And what will happen is either platforms will sell you to other people or they will come to you for money to reach the people you thought were your audience. They're not your audience. They're Facebook's audience and Medium's audience. They don't give you the asset you have built. They keep it. That's distinct from the million people who follow me on my blog because it's mine. And I can switch from one platform to the other, from iPad to WordPress or wherever, and I get to take it with me. And so that's my asset, and I protect it. I don't ever spam people. I don't ever say, i got to make the numbers go up this month. What can I sell, folks? And so the value of my asset goes up, whereas Facebook has never been able to say to me, oh, you know all those people you're counting on to reach? We want some money if you want to reach them tomorrow. Because I'm like, I don't need you to help me reach those folks. And so it might be harder at the beginning. But again, if you're a professional, you need to earn that trust and that attention. And you shouldn't do it for someone else.
0: Yeah, this happened a couple of years ago when um, it became blatantly obvious with Facebook pages and some of the well, especially Facebook pages, where the more you promoted, the less effective it was, and the right. bigger your the bigger your page got, the less people that it reached, and people were mad about it, right? Because they're like, I built this following. It's like, you use their service. It's been their following the whole time, right? Right? They let you borrow it, and they took it away. Like, that's the problem, right? And and every you're right. Every every medium, every channel is going to do that if you don't own it.
1: Yeah, and you know this. Wasn't invented in, by social media. It's been around for a very long time. Walter Cronkite needed CBS as much as CBS needed Walter Cronkite. And um, I just really—it makes me sad to see the carnival of social media. That you have a lot of peers, not so many people my age, but you have a lot of peers who have gotten totally caught up in this idea of how many followers do I have, and how do I move this, and how do I move that, hoping to be a Kardashian. And the fact is, social media noise is a symptom that you are doing something people care about, not the other way around. Making social media noise doesn't make people care about you.
0: I'm curious. You mentioned um, the big difference between direct uh, marketing advertising and brand marketing advertising. Yep. And... I was thinking about this because it reminded me of Chris Brogan's distinction between conversion media and connection media. Um, you're you're using somewhat similar terms, just using it different ways, right? Um, yeah, and Chris have, is
1: he's really smart, but I would I started it up, but I think we're talking about slightly different things here.
0: You are talking about slightly different things, but the the point that overlap is that there's certain types of media where you are really um, focused on on the metrics and the conversion, and you're, you're worried about that. And there's another type of media where it's not about that. And the more that you try to apply one framework to the right. other, the more that you mess it up. Exactly. Right? And so his point is Instagram is a connection media, not a conversion media. Um, and you might slice it different, but I think you're saying the same sort of thing, like be careful about what this thing does.
1: Um, That's a key part of it, but it, I'm getting more tactical here, which is, Uh, Lester Wonderman, who was on the board of Yo-Yo and I, named direct marketing. It was his idea to call it that. He invented key parts of the American Express Club and the Columbia Record Club. This goes way back, old school. And what Lester said is direct marketing is measured marketing. If you can measure it, you should make the number go up. And the Internet is largely driven by measurement. So Google makes all its money because they have gone to marketers who have figured out that a click is worth $2.84, and they will sell you the click for $2.72, measured marketing. So you are now surrounded by people who measure. But if you show up with an unmeasurable message trying to make an unmeasurable change, and you start measuring, you will completely shoot yourself in the foot. Because you will then try to make a number goes up that's the wrong number. So if you're selling vodka, you should not be running direct marketing ads. You should be running brand ads like Absolute Vodka in the back of The New Yorker. Because you can't measure that. It's going to be months before someone goes to the liquor store and buys what you just advertised. Months. So if you want to have an influence with almost anything that matters to people emotionally, can't go at it like a direct marketer. You have to go at it like a brand marketer because you don't have the tools or the time to measure every click. That you know it's said that if you optimize any website enough like a direct marketer, sooner or later it will become a porn site. Because what that means is you'll just keep getting edgier and edgier and edgier to cuz you want to make the clicks work. Or if we look at YouTube, If you just follow recommended videos, 10 clicks on YouTube, you will end up with a hate video on one side of one argument or another because all YouTube wants is clicks. So their algorithm keeps surfacing the extremes. And that's not why you or I got into this. So what we have to do is say, in these moments of my day, which is most of it, I'm doing brand marketing. Don't ask me for measurements. And then once I figured some of that out, I can do direct marketing on top of it Make sure I measure it, but don't get confused.
0: Now, this is in the context of advertising, putting dollars in to get some particular effect. Um, I was interested. What, what really struck me is that as we talk about podcasts and our podcast specifically, that's one of those questions because there's a significant outlay of money. There's a significant outlay of time. Right. Where, the, where does this fit in, especially when you look at our website, which we can say, hey, this is working. Because of these signals, um, you know, it's just the podcast has different signals to it whatsoever, or you know, completely. And so I'm like, huh. I wonder where Seth would put podcasts on on this. So you're thing.
1: saying podcasts that have that make money from advertisers/sponsors? Is that the question?
0: I want to, if we can, take a move from the specific the specifics of advertising. Right to just marketing and the assets that the assets that we right. build
1: generally. So I guess what I'm getting at is, the podcast. Are you saying as a tool for Charlie to build his other projects, or yes. are you saying, okay, so let me briefly answer the other question first because it's worth mentioning. Most podcasts that want to make money are in trouble because they have advertisers who are direct marketers. So that's when you'll hear, go to stamps, blah, 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 dot com slash whatever, Mark Marin And then they're sitting there counting how many people went. It's going to be 12. It's not going to work. But some podcasts have sponsors. And sponsors don't measure. All right. So Akimbo is sponsored by Lenovo right now. I love the ads they're running. They're working, but they're completely unmeasurable. I found a sponsor. That's a big home run. Okay. So leaving that part aside. What it means to build trust is to make promises and keep them. And what it means to build trust in your insight, and your wisdom, is to have authority. And the way you have authority is by describing to people how you see the world and having it resonate with them. So if you take your time on a podcast and go to places that scare you, that others aren't willing to talk about, But describe in that place useful information. You gain authority. If you gain authority, you're halfway to gaining trust, and that makes it more likely that you'll be the one and only, which means that people will come to your conference or hire you or whatever it is.
0: Speaking of podcasts, what is it about Akimbo that you enjoy the most in the production and the sharing of it?
1: Well, the two things I like about the production are my Producer Alex De Palma, she's fantastic, but I mostly do it all by myself here in this little insulated shower that I built. Um, and I send her something that's pretty much done. But I love at the beginning when I get to say, and this is it, just makes me happy every time. Um, mostly, though, the project lets me do the work I seek to do with a blog post, but in a way that's much deeper and lets me play with other axes of influence. I can't do one every day. It, some podcasts take me half an hour to make, and some take me a week. Um, but the fact that I don't have guests puts me on the hook, and it says this is something Seth wanted to talk about today, so it better be worth listening to because it, if it's not, then my promise isn't kept.
0: Yeah, and so listeners, if you haven't heard Seth's um, Akimbo podcast, it's fantastic. Um, I emailed Seth a few months ago and told him that it's like the perfect dose for me. Sometimes I fall behind on the blog, right? right? Um, but, the but like, I know there's going to be a weekly thing, and I just love it. So thanks for producing that. It's such a good listen.
1: That's a pleasure. I know how hard it is now for people to do what you do, and so my respect for you goes up a lot.
0: Thank you. Um, now, I know that... Um, I'm going to start this one over. What bit of feedback, criticism, or misunderstanding about your work most frustrates you, and how do you process that?
1: I'm really pleased that it's going away. But for a while, there were a group of people who saw themselves as dealing with insufficiency and needing to hustle. So they asserted that that's what I was doing that there was some sort of long con I was playing and that I'm doing this teaching to get rich. And it's just completely untrue. I mean, there are way better ways for me to make a living than this. And it hurt me that when I was doing work that felt generous to me, a few people saw it as some sort of cloud with a a gray lining on the inside. Uh, I think I've outlasted most of those people. That after like blog post 4,300, people said, oh, this can't possibly be a long con," And so it's a privilege for me. The fact that I get the blog every day, I would do it even if no one read it. And, um, you know, the books, people say, oh, if you do this for me, I'll buy 10 of your books. I'm like, you should buy my books if you want, but I'm going to make $99 if you buy 10 of my books. No, that's wrong. 90 cents. It's ninety cents. Ten, nine dollars. I'll make nine dollars if you buy ten of my books. So no, I'm not going to go fly across the country so that you can bribe me by buying ten of my books. That's not why I wrote them. I wrote them because I needed to write them to share them with someone I cared about. And if there's as a side effect, you think it's worth fifteen bucks, by all means, support my publisher. I'm sure he would appreciate that.
0: Yeah, clearly they have not done their homework on you to realize how long you've been in this, because that's the longest con ever, right, for, <laughs> for someone who really doesn't need to con folks in that way. So, yeah, um, it's their own stuff there. Um, when you finish a book, um, you feel it feels done, but then, I don't know, six to three months later, you're like, oh, I forgot to put that in there. Yeah. Like, what was that thing for you, um, one, two or three things that, that you're like, man, I wish that was in the book?
1: Well, for me, it always happens when I'm reading the audiobook. book. Um, because that forces you to thoughtfully go through it. But I will tell you the truth, which is because I ran the marketing seminar five times before I wrote this book, I already got that experience before I even wrote it. So there's nothing I want to change. At the last minute, I changed the order of two chapters and added a paragraph, and my publisher was very nice about that. But at least as of today... Here it is. I made this, and I'm happy with it.
0: So what, what I'm taking from that is if this were written after the first time you did the marketing seminar, you probably oh, yeah. would have wanted to add a whole lot more.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, when I launched the marketing seminar, there were 40 videos in it. And after the first session, we took out a bunch. I added 15 more, and we could see what was working and what wasn't. And there were certain places where people were just banging their head against the wall, and we eased them through those things. And you know, the whole conversation about authority and dominance really uh, was a hard swallow for a lot of people. So you'll note in the book, I don't spend two pages on it. I spend 25 pages on it because I think it's important enough to take my time and take them through it.
0: What's, so you're writing this book because, one, you want to write the book. Two, you want to make a change happen, but... For the person who reads this, what's one really specific thing you'd like them to do, say, immediately after they finish the book?
1: Something to do. I guess what I would, I mean, I know how how I want them to feel. I want them to feel responsible. I want them to feel responsible and empowered because they go together. Um, The one thing I guess that's the easiest way to begin is make your audience smaller that the smallest viable audience is the most actionable, instantaneous shift that the book proposes. It's, a, it's as big a shift as the whole lean entrepreneur thing, which is small minimum viable product. Smallest viable audience is very difficult for people to get their arms around. But if you try it out, it frees you up to do profoundly different work that will either find its audience or not.
0: As the guest for today's podcast, you get to lead um, our listeners with either an invitation or a challenge. Now, you may have just given that um, invitation or challenge, but what would you want to invite or challenge our listeners to do?
1: Well, you're not doing what you do alone. And if you are doing what you do alone, I hope you will find some other people who do what you do. And my challenge is to sit in a circle of five people and tell each other the truth about your marketing. Tell each other the truth about who you seek to serve, where your generosity lies, what it would mean for you to be more professional, to bring emotional labor to it, who is the smallest viable audience. If you can say those things out loud to four other people on your team or to four fellow travelers, I think you will find it insanely refreshing and a really useful step forward.
0: Seth, as always, it's been a blast. Thanks so much for writing the book and for taking the time to share some of the insights from it
1: with us. You're the best, Charlie. Thank you, sir.
0: Okay, listeners, you heard it from Seth. First off, you got to find those five people. So who are those five people that you can sit down with and share some of those questions? What's my smallest volume Molly? Um audience? What change am I trying to make? And what do I need to do today to start making that change happen? Not next week, but today. Until next time, stand tall.